Section 43 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Epilogue. Not since Henry VI of England was crowned King of France in Notre Dame had the great nation suffered a humiliation so entire as during that conference of allies which occupied Paris during the summer of 1815 in order to arrange the future of Europe and to assume the government of France. The defeat of 1814 had been nothing compared to this complete abasement. France lay prone while her enemies yelped and bayed about her, each eyeing some juicy, tender morsel to set its fangs in, snatch asunder, and carry to its lair unreproved. The leanest states were the hungriest and the most pitiless, Prussia and the Germans, greedy beyond all bounds. Nothing was too small for them. They stripped the walls of the public picture galleries. They threatened to blow up the Jena Bridge, memorial of their defeat. Do as you will, said Louis the Eighteenth. I warn you, I shall have myself carried onto the bridge in my armchair. And no project for the dismemberment of France appeared to them preposterous. They would fain have had the kingdom occupied for the space of seven years by an army of two hundred and forty thousand men. They wanted a war indemnity of twelve hundred millions. They claimed French Flanders, Alsace, Lorraine, Savoy, Burgundy, Franche-Comte, part of Champagne, and part of Dauphiné. They wished to separate from the mother country some four million seven hundred and sixty thousand souls, and naturally they required the fortresses, Dunkirk, Lille, Metz, Strasbourg, Besançon, Chambéry at least. The very spirit of destruction possessed them. Austria, indifferent, well-bred, looked on, mildly disapproving this excess of Prussian cupidity. For her own part, she was less exacting, proposing merely a return to the historical frontiers of 1790, an indemnity of six hundred millions, and the dismantling of the first line of French defences in Flanders and Alsace. Yet she did nothing to oppose the hungrier despoilers, hypocritically benign, secretly not a little ferocious, as is the wont of Austria. The unhappy king of France could do nothing. These furies who spoke of dismembering his kingdom were the allies who had restored his throne. In its secret sessions the conference had drawn up a map of France, of the miserable remnant left when all these avidities should be satisfied. Such mysterious meetings were never so occult as their members imagine. Somehow their dim arcana are generally violated. A copy of the map came into the hands of the old king, sitting forlorn, unfriended in his Tuileries. Louis the Eighteenth, whatever were his faults, never failed in dignity. He sent for the Duke of Wellington, for the Emperor Alexander. He spoke first to the conqueror of Waterloo. My Lord Duke, I thought on my return to France to reign over the kingdom of my forefathers. It seems that I was mistaken. Will your government, my lord, grant me a refuge if for the second time I ask the hospitality of England? The impulsive Alexander left the duke no time to answer. No, no, your majesty shall not lose those provinces 
I will not suffer it. From that moment, perhaps before, else why did the wise old king send especially for those two representatives of his allies, but at any rate certainly from that moment, France in her extremity saw two unexpected angels, two miraculous champions, detach themselves from the rout of her oppressors and stand by her side. They were Alexander and Wellington. At first they were much more Alexander and Wellington than Russia and England, but that was to follow. Alexander was an autocrat who summed up in his person all the Russias. But Wellington and Castlereagh had some difficulty and some merit in bringing the English at home round to their point of view. In their chivalrous action, as in Alexander's, there was more than the magnanimity that met the eye. The character of Alexander of Russia is one of the most interesting in modern history. Only a mystic could be at once so dreamily high-minded and so alertly practical, so ingenuous and so shrewd a calculator, so noble and so full of guile. Alexander was the St. Francis Xavier of 19th century politics, more spiritualized than ever in 1815, being under the influence of Madame de Crudener, and pledged to further the reign of Christ on earth. But for the last year he had looked with suspicion on the new importance of Prussia, of Germany. France, bounding these countries upon their further side, would be an incomparable ally for the government of the Tsar. In the East, also, France might prove for Russia an excellent counterpoise to the influence of Great Britain. No, from every point of view, moral or mundane, it was clear that conquered France must not be too much enfeebled. Wellington and Castlereagh, meanwhile, were ruminating thoughts not wholly dissimilar. England, too, might want one day a friend in need, and who's so handy as a neighbor. Especially did they dread too close an alliance between France and Russia. The principal arguments of Castlereagh, wrote Gagern, the representative of the Netherlands, are the necessity of keeping Russia within bounds, for Russia has a kindness for France and tends to an alliance, while England seeks to outlive her in generosity and moderation. Mais il y a la manière. Alexander spoke from an impulse of the heart no less than from a deep political calculation. He had never forgotten those words of Talleyrand's at Erfurt. The French nation is civilized. The sovereign of Russia is civilized. Let the emperor of Russia be the ally of the people of France. Alexander felt a moral duty of protection toward the French, and in his then mood of vicar of Christ on earth, we may suppose that he regarded the distressful country as his lost sheep, whom he would bring back to the fold on his shoulder. After all these years, the accents of his arguments are moving, as he complains of the Germans who degrade the cause of the Allies by their violence and their vengeance, their unmannerly avarice, their pretensions to Alsace and Lorraine. Les Alsaciens répugnent à devenir Allemands. I entirely share your majesty's opinion as to the extravagant character of the prussian proposals chimed in the duke of wellington the duke's task was not light for as i have said he had to convert his government at home and above all to sway and manage that tremendous force the british public 
inclined to look on the french as a sort of catholic heathen little better than cannibals in manners and morals take something wrote lord liverpool wellington took as little as he could filched a few works of art and that with so bad a grace that he set the french against him while he barely calmed the folks at home but in essentials no less than alexander he stood the friend of france l'angleterre ne veut pas qu'il arrive de mal à la france complains the german diplomatist neisenau in a letter to the poet arndt and he scarce knows what to argue from une pareille perversité but wellington stood firm he had not alexander's mystical magnanimity but he had a sportsman's liking for fair play a soldier's fellowship for the adversary he had found it so hard to beat a gentleman's dislike for the avarice of the germans both he and castlereagh wrote to lord liverpool that the prosperity of france was england's advantage thanks to england and russia france was not dismembered she lost but a recent acquisition savoy and the few frontier fortresses not of the first rank these last which were french since louis quatorze being cruel sacrifices still mauled and mulcted france was left alive with all her limbs and all her faculties organically perfect here let me quote again that verse of ronsard's which i have printed in my second fly-leaf le gaulois semble au sol verdissant plus on le coupe et plus il est naissant et rejetonne en branche davantage prenant vigueur de son propre dommage the gall is like the verdant willow bush the more you prune the more it's lithe and lush shooting a crown of branchy twigs all round and draws new life and vigour from a wound we know what life what vigour our pruned laurel france was to find in the nineteenth century in art in letters for just as we take leave of her the first romantics arrive on the horizon in science too with lamarck le verrier claude bernard pasteur and the rest in industry in social science and also in politics tending ever more and more as her history evolves to that alliance which was foreshadowed more than a hundred years ago in the tragic paris of eighteen fifteen end of section forty three read by pamela nagami m d in encino california november twenty twenty one end of a short history of france from caesar's invasion to the battle of waterloo by mary duclos